Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So friends, we're finishing up a series we've been doing for the last several weeks. Um, kind of an Eastertide series on resurrection and new life and what that means and what that looks like throughout all of scripture. And we started in the book of Revelation several weeks ago and we've been slowly working our way backwards. And so today um, we're going to be finishing up the series by starting at the beginning. So Sarah, where all are we going at the beginning? Well, we have finally made it to the book of Genesis, which I believe in Hebrew means the beginning. Hey, how about that? Yeah, so we are, you know, in true fashion at the end of our series. <laughs> um, but we are going to be looking at particular in two stories in Genesis. The first being Noah in the Great Flood. And then the second story being the creation story. So, and we're doing it in that order because we've been working our way backwards. Right. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to talk about the creation and then talk about Noah and the flood. So we're talking about Noah first. Yeah. And maybe, even though everybody thinks they know this story from children's books and um, children's wallpaper and nursery, I mean, it's like uh-huh. one of those recurring images, even though it's a terrifying story. <laughs> Super terrifying. Yeah, yeah. And, and terrifying, maybe for more reasons than we want to admit. I mean, at one level, oh, we yes. do have to admit it's terrifying because it talks about wiping out almost all of creation. On top of that, that God is convinced beforehand that human rottenness and sin has gotten so bad that wiping them out is a better move than leaving us to do terrible mm-hmm. things to each other before that. And it presents the theological wrinkle, I'll say, instead of the word I want to say problem. <laughs> um, and that at the beginning of what becomes the story of Noah and the Flood, God looks out at the wickedness of human beings, the way we are cruel and terrible and rotten to each other, the way we abuse and misuse each other and creation and wreck everything, that God is sorry to have made us. Yeah, I think that's um, a couple of my... It's just heart-wrenching verses in the Bible. You know, Genesis 6, 6 says... And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created. And... Like, that's just... Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. And and scary, but I think even more... Um, it's, it's that, like you say, heart-wrenching that the, the, the language is less of anger and more of God feeling very, very sad. I mean, there's a oh. sorrow of like, I intended this to be good. And you all have hurt each... And, like, this isn't just that God starts throwing lightning bolts when we jaywalk, but more like when God sees the way we hurt each other, God weeps over the person who gets beaten up or the person who's murdered or the person who's abused. This is God's deep, deep anger to say, no, I can't let that continue anymore. It's kind of like when you're a teenager and you mess up, as teenagers do, and you're, you're, you're going home before your parents and you're expecting mom and dad to yell at you and instead they cry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're disappointed. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's so much worse than being angry. Please just be angry. Yeah. yeah. Please be me mad at me. Don't be disappointed in me. Because once you're disappointed in me, then, like, I, I feel like I can't come back from that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is six chapters in, folks. Right, right, right. right. I mean, this, you know, this is the kind of stuff you expect to happen at the end right. of a story, or at least in the middle of the story. We are six chapters in right. to scripture. And God has already realized, you know, just within you know, a few generations from Adam and Eve that 
man, these people really messed it up. And I think this is a reminder, too, about how high the stakes are when the biblical writers think and talk about what we call sin in the church's jargon. Sometimes we treat sin like it's just sort of the individual actions of me stealing a cookie from the cookie jar, and that's an isolatable little action, and that sin is the record of the mm-hmm. individual times I did something wrong. And instead, there's a sense of how pervasive and and how the the rottenness fractures everything that when i break relationship with one person that ripples out in your mm-hmm. world and affects you the same way you know like when when parents abuse a child now that child is more likely to become an abuser themselves and now it just ripples mm-hmm. out and spreads until everything gets uh damaged or broken or fractured and now that we've got jagged edges on us we start jabbing each other more i mean like it it becomes worse and worse in that way and that that these are the stakes it's not just that god sent jesus because we occasionally jaywalk and sneak cookies it's that there's this rottenness in us that dis- mm-hmm. that that abuses and hurts and harms each other and seems to be okay with it, and that God says no, that can't stand. So, not to do too many spoilers here, but the story's been around for thousands of years. You should have heard it by now. God, after deciding is going to destroy everything, God says, "I will I will hold on to the creation at, mm-hmm. at the same time by choosing Noah and his family and a boat full of all the animals." And we won't maybe spend a whole lot of time on how does that all work, how many animals, because that's a whole episode. Yeah, there are strands <laughs> in the story that say there's two of each. There are strands in the story that say there's seven pairs of animals. There are some parts of the story that say it was forty days. Others say it was a hundred. Like we won't get into the nitty gritty of the multiple layers of what happens in the, in the flood story. Um, but I do think it's telling that just as we've been talking about through this whole series about God holding on continuity to creation and also making something new, that happens in this story too. Mm-hmm. That even though in a sense God wipes out humanity, God keeps the rootstock. <laughs> God keeps Noah, who is whatever the whatever the software flaws are in human beings before the flood, God has held on to those because Noah, a sinner, is one of the guys who's brought mm-hmm. through. Yeah, God I, sees Noah as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. I, I, I get but, that. But then, then again, we do also have this weird story about Noah getting Noah, drunk in the... Th- right, right, right. Like being passed out naked, and then mm-hmm. his son covers him, and then it's like this whole weird episode of who was in the wrong. Was it naked Noah, or was it his son who covered him? Like, it, it's a weird... There, there's weird a lot of weirdness, but like, I guess my point is that even though the beginning of the story names Noah as blameless and righteous or something like that, Noah Noah still has the same human problem that all of us yeah. does. Mm-hmm. And if you need evidence of that, read the newspaper. We still continue to be mess-ups. It's not like, oh, well, after Noah, they all did right. Nope. nope. We, and I think I think maybe the beginning of the story is more optimistic, uh, but by the end it's sort of clear, like, oh, no, God hasn't said, I'm going to, the problem is there's some defective human beings, I'm going to get rid of the defective ones. Mm-hmm. I think at the end of the story, part of the lesson or part of the, the choice God makes is to say, no, I'm going to continue with these flawed humans, and I'm not going to replace them with robots. I'm not going to replace them with beings that will only ever mm-hmm. obey me. Um, and that God holds on to the goodness of creation and all the animals and all the diversity that they bring. God doesn't give up on that, and God says, I will continue, and I'll keep these human beings, even though there's some sense of starting over. And I, th- I think it's important. This is, this is one of those, I will, I will own this as a quirk of my own theology, I will not speak for anybody else. But I do think it is telling, at the end of the story, also spoiler alert, they get through the flood, At the end of the story, when God makes a covenant with all creation and says, never again, I won't do this again, God says, I'm hanging up my bow in the clouds. And we jumped immediately, go, oh, this is a story that explains where rainbows came from. But the word, the the, the Hebrew word, the idea is actually like a bow, like a bow and arrow. Like the idea is that God's saying, 
I'm not going to zap you all and wipe out creation every time you deserve it ever, anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it that way. I'm, my way of saving and redeeming creation is not going to be, I'll just wipe you out every time you deserve it. Otherwise, God would be doing that every morning. <laughs> but the God says, I'm, not, I'm hanging up my bow. I won't be zapping you that way anymore. Instead, God chooses from that moment on, the story turns toward God chooses Abraham, and we do things through Israel and then through Jesus and what we call the story of the rest of the Bible. But the, in, a, in a sense, this is where I'm going to say this is my half-formed thought, God makes a conscious choice at the end of the story to say, I'm not going to do it this way again. I had the right to. I could have done this. I did it here. But I'm not going to do it that way. And every time you all deserve it as a creation, every time I have the right to zap you, I won't. I'm instead going to choose to save the world through Jesus, in whom eventually all that zapping happens, and Jesus bears it all. And when God says, God says, I'll be the one who takes the hit. I'll go to the cross. I'll bear all that wrath. But at this point, I think it's an important move that the scripture writers take by saying God hangs up his bow. And we just jump to, oh, isn't he as cute after the rainbow came from? And I think the text is saying something a lot heavier about I'm not doing it that way anymore. Okay, as, as you're describing this, Steve, I'm picturing a bow and, and, and how a bow works. And when God hangs up his bow in that direction, the only way that bow can then shoot is up. It's not towards <laughs> us, but up towards him. And just... Wow, mind blown! Um, that connection. Yeah, uh, never thought of it that way. But like the connection that you know what, when I need to fix creation again, I'll take when I need to destroy something yeah. to fix creation again, I'm going to destroy says, myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I think the early chapters in Genesis, m- maybe the writers don't know it as they're telling it, but the way Christians read the stories has to be, oh my goodness, God is laying out the groundwork of saying when it comes to it, I'll take the hit. So like later on, a couple of chapters when it's Abraham and uh, offering up the sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? And at the end of it, it God's answer very clearly is you're not going to the one who's going to lose a son. Like the unspoken second half of that sentence is when it comes to it, God will be the one who loses. Okay, I'll be the one who takes the hit over this. And that so much of these early chat again, like I realize the people writing Genesis six through nine aren't thinking one day this is going to make a great payoff when Jesus comes. They're not. They're not ready for the Jesus moment. Mm-hmm. But from the lens of the New Testament, looking back at that, um, I think an important piece of this story is God making a conscious choice at the end of the flood story, saying. Even though I have the right to wipe you out every time I think you deserve it, I will not. I'm not going to do it that way. God reserves the right, but then let's go. I'm hanging up my bow, and instead the story takes a really different turn. So that God never does this all wiping out creation again um, uh, with a a flood or with whatever. And and then Jesus is the one who absorbs it. This story always comes to mind when a big natural disaster has hit somewhere, Mm -hmm. and... There's always, like, those questionings of, you know, God is punishing you for X, Y, Z, whatever it may be. But this is the story that says, no. Yeah. We don't live with that fear. Because mm-hmm. if we can imagine Noah and the flood happening, and then God not making that covenant, and God not hanging up God's bow in the sky, then if you can imagine, like, the... Noah's sons' wives then living in that world, giving birth to children, mm-hmm. always kind of looking over their shoulder and always trying to keep their children mm-hmm. peaceable with each other because if you don't, if you act yeah. wicked, if you sin in some mm-hmm. way, God's going to destroy us like God destroyed my family. Yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. they didn't get to go on the boat. The right. people who went on the boat was Noah and his family, and I just happened to be lucky enough to marry into the family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But my aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters, they all died. Right. Mm-hmm. And you, you, my children, and my mm-hmm. nieces and nephews, if you don't shape up, you're going to be next. And... Um, 
But that's not the world we live in. That's not the fear that we have to have. Mm -hmm. So when natural disasters do happen, we can be assured that they're not happening because God is wrathful and vengeful and is punishing us for some sin. Mm -hmm. And I think the the biblical text gives us further warrant for that because in addition to this whole rainbow bow hanging up in the sky thing, the language is very clear at the end of the Noah story in in Genesis 9 where it says that God makes a covenant with all of creation and Mm -hmm. the language is an eternal forever covenant. And unlike some covenants in the Bible that are two-party, that are you do this and then I'll do that, you know, you keep my commandments and I'll be your God, that kind of thing. This is a one-sided covenant. The word we usually use for a one-sided covenant is promise. In other words, this is something I will do regardless of what you do. Mm-hmm. And in other words, there's no there's no fine print that lets God off the hook. There's no point where God says, I promise I won't flood the earth anymore as long as you're well-behaved. There is no, there's no separate paragraph for our behavior in this. God says, by myself I'm swearing, I'm making the promise, never again will I do this, mm-hmm. and it doesn't depend on your behavior anymore. You might all deserve it, but I'm not operating by that system anymore. I'm not going to zap all of creation just because mm-hmm. you're stinkers who deserve it. I will deal with all of human sin. We all, Christians will go, through Jesus! Um, but in the meantime, it's God has said, that's not going to be my policy anymore. And it's a one-sided covenant. It, it hangs entirely on God's promise um, and not on our behavior. That also leads to a whole bunch of other messy complications in life, too. Um, because it also means that God has said he won't just wipe us out when we do terrible things, which means that God is willing to live with a world where sometimes people do terrible things and get away with them. I mean, I think, I think in a sense, that's a difficult consequence of the way this story mm-hmm. ends. Mm-hmm. That um, God could have opted for a system that every time one human being sins, God wipes out the whole thing because to one sin ruins the whole batch. Um, but God's, God is willing, apparently, to live with a world in which we keep doing rotten things and sometimes stinkers get away with it. Um, which is a sad consequence, and yet at the same time, God seems to think it's better to have this world uh, than wipe it out, um, and that God would rather love us even in our brokenness than to replace mm-hmm. us with robots or zombies or mo- clay models. You know. Now that's where the Noah story ends, but maybe this is a moment for us to jump back yet to the very, 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 very beginning. So there's this idea of new creation at the end of Noah, but that sort of points us backward to the very, very start of all this, toward the beginning of the book about beginnings, (laughs) the beginning of Genesis, and sort of two lenses on that story in Genesis 1 and then sort of a focused in, zoomed in version in Mm -hmm. Genesis 2, right? So what what are things that that we ought to know or highlight about uh, what happens in in creation in Genesis 1 and 2? I think probably just to begin at the beginning that, you know, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, that there was nothing before that. Mm-hmm. That the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. Do you remember what we talked about way, way, way at the beginning of this series when we were at the end of the Bible? <laughs> and we talked about how in the new creation, uh, John the seer says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth and there's no more sea anymore. And we talked about this idea of like mm-hmm. the sea being this image of mm-hmm. chaos. And that here's the here's the chaos at the beginning. Mm-hmm. The, the spirit broods over the deep. And the, it, the image is like, well, there's these sort of like churning waters and... You know, again, you want to ask the writer of Genesis, well, what are you picturing there? What, what, is, what is that? You said there's nothing, and now there's waters. But it's, it's like he's reaching for a way to talk about not like the still, quiet, peaceful darkness of night, but like this sort of like 
churning chaotic nothingness mm-hmm. that almost seems scary. I'm pretty sure this is, this is me and my rusty Hebrew, but I'm pretty sure that the word for um, the the brooding over the waters here is a cognate for one of the uh, word, the names for a chaos monster in one of the old Babylonian yeah. stories. That like there's an etymological root to like when the Babylonians told their stories about creation, they had a monster that was fought mm-hmm. in the creation, yeah. and that. There's this idea that when God creates, God doesn't have to fight a battle to create, mm-hmm. but that there's this ominous sort of, you know, this, this, this chaos that is a scary reality out there. Um, and maybe that's a moment for us to stop and say, even though we're uh, folks who are churchgoers are used to this way of talking about creation, lots of ancient cultures had ways of talking about where they thought the world came yeah. from. Mm-hmm. And there's a pretty distinct difference in the way the the voices in Genesis talk mm-hmm. compared to the Babylonian stories or, or lots of the other uh, epics and, and mythologies. So many of those ancient cultures imagine creation as this cosmic battle between mm-hmm. one set of gods and another set of gods or gods and monsters mm-hmm. and that gods or whichever gods win that battle make the world out of the carcasses of the dead monsters and make human beings to be the slaves of the gods. And that the creation story we get in Genesis 1 and then in Genesis 2 is totally different on that count. That it's not that God has to fight a battle or even work hard. God doesn't even have to roll up the divine sleeves to make... God doesn't break a sweat, but God speaks and there's the universe. And nobody has to fight a battle. I mean, the, the ancients, even... They were so steeped in violence as sort of that's the way the world is. That's the way they told their story of the creation. And the... The Hebrew Bible starts so differently. Nobody had to kill anything to make the universe. God just makes the universe out of love. That's a really different kind of a telling, and that sets the whole way you tell the story differently, too. And at this moment, you know, there was nothing, and then God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth at this point is the new creation. Right, right, right. (laughs) You know, it's not what we're referring to when we refer to my beloved Revelation 21. Right, right, right. um, When God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Mm -hmm. But at this moment... It is. (laughs) Right? Still has that new universe smell. Yeah, yeah. Um... And one of the things I think is important about the way Genesis 1 describes that creation is that there's a sense of everything hanging together, mm-hmm. of, of purpose and of design. And again, we could spend a whole bunch of conversation on another day about uh, how different people have read this and the days and the, how long the days are. And I think, I think that misses the point mm-hmm. in the same way that um, it misses the point when we talked about the, if the okay. feast to say, are there going to be Twinkies at the eternal feast? But like, no, you're, you're, you're losing the forest for the trees here. <laughs> but the idea that there's nothing that God makes without purpose or design or value, that there's a sense of everything being good and how many times God pauses and stops and says, and it was good. And it was good, and it was good. Mm-hmm. And that there's this rhythm of first God making the spaces, the canvases almost, and then after that, painting the canvases. So first there's light and dark, and then the sea and the sky, and then the uh, dry land and the sea, and then God fills each of those on days four, five, and six. So that there's never a point where God's like, I'm going to make a goldfish. Oops, I don't have a place to put it. Let me really quick invent uh, water. Mm-hmm. But that there's a sense of order and design, and that everything hangs together. And when it's all done, God looks at it and goes, it's good, good. And like there's a sense of the way everything fits together, mm-hmm. that things belong, that there's a sense of belonging, or mm-hmm. shalom, again, to use that Hebrew word, um, that, I think, is, is something that the the rest of the Bible keeps looking back to and saying, that's what we're made for. We weren't born out of violence. We weren't born out of fighting the chaos monsters. We are made just as scraps from the carcass of some sort of evil creature, but with intention and purpose and design. Um, and that we human beings find a place in that at the end of that story, um, 
but not that we are the bosses of it, I think is important too. Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which it builds and humans have a special role in creation, but it's not that God says, um, now you can do whatever you want with it, but there's this idea of us being stewards of it, meant to, to enjoy, but also to take care of. That seems an important piece of how the storytelling goes. Um, maybe we could also give a quick nod in this uh, part of, of Genesis that when we zoom into Genesis 2 and the way Genesis 2 tells it, which is slightly different retelling, there you get explicitly the garden image, right? So mm -hmm. Genesis 1 sort of is a sweeping cosmic, you know, God speaks the world. In fact, when Genesis 1 tells it, God says, let us make humankind and sort of makes them all at once, right? Mm -hmm. And then God makes human beings male and female all at once. And then Genesis 2 sort of says, let me tell it slightly differently. Um, and in there, there's this garden imagery, right? So there's the tree, and there's... I mean, that, that's the, the part of the talking snake that everybody knows about, again, from children's books, even though it's kind of a messy, terrible story. <laughs> um, but uh, the, there's this image of the tree of life there that then disappears after the humans are kicked out of the, the, um, the garden, but that that tree returns again at the end of the story in Genesis mm -hmm. 20, in, in Revelation 21. So we talked before about how um, the, the Bible sort of bookends and that Revelation 21 sort of brings back those themes. At the end, the telltale end in Genesis 21 and 22, when God creates the new city and the new creation, there's the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And that that's borrowing an image that comes from the very, very beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. So that there's a sense of restoration of finally being at home, even though, like we said, God makes it new, and yet there's some familiar marks, I guess. In the second account of creation is also when we get relationship, mm -hmm. which I think is really important because we see Adam and Eve having relationship with one another as the first people, mm -hmm. but we also get the relationship that God has with Adam and Eve and how God will come and walk in the garden and converse yeah. with mm -hmm. Adam and Eve. And then, um, you know, after they eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree, the, what is it, tree of good, the, the knowledge, knowledge of good and evil. evil. Mm -hmm. um, and they realize that they're naked and they hear God's coming. And so they go and hide, not because, oh no, we've done this thing we weren't supposed to do, but, oh no, we're, we're naked and yeah. we don't want to, God to see us naked. But God is coming around for his like daily walk, walk through the garden, with yeah. Adam and Eve and I think that that relationship that God had mm -hmm. is important to notice yeah. because I think that's the relationship that God desires when God talks in again my beloved Revelation <laughs> 21 when God comes mm -hmm. and makes his God's home yeah. among God's peoples that that is what God remembers and once back is yeah. that mm -hmm. ability to just walk in the garden with God's creation. Yeah. I think that's important too because um, it's a reminder of what what each part of the creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 bring to the picture of God and our relationship with God. If all we had was Genesis 1, we could have this very distant picture of the sort of this absent abstract mm -hmm. deity who sort of, you know, speaks and the universe exists, but at a distance, you know, like mm -hmm. Genesis 1 is the God of that Bette Midler song, God watching the world at a distance, you know, mm -hmm. but like Genesis 2, it's this very intimate, in fact, even the language of God creating it changes. Instead of um, God creates, it's God fashions or molds like a potter with the clay. And so God makes the human beings out of dirt, out of the clay of the ground. Mm -hmm. 
in a, in a play on words that's clearer in the Hebrew, because the word for earth, like soil, is Adama, and the first human is Adam. Mm-hmm. So that basically Adam's name is like Earthling <laughs> or Dirtman. Um, and that there's this idea of a God who's that much close. I mean, like a God who not mm-hmm. only forms from the clay, but then breathes in through the earth creature's mm-hmm. nostrils and breathes life into him. Again, it's like, it's like a CPR, you know, mouth-to-mouth sort of an image. It's a whole lot closer. Now, if all you had was Genesis 2, you might picture God as sort of bumbling because God, you know, here's a tiger. Oh, that's not a good helpmate. Oh, here's a lion. That's not, no. And eventually God comes up with making it Eve. Um, but together you get this picture of order and design and purpose and also this intimacy that God is both transcendent and powerful and almighty and holy other, to use Karl Barth's phrase, but also intimate and, and imminent and close. And it's not an either or, like so many things in in the Christian faith. It's not you pick one or the other, but it's both and. And I like the way you said it, Sarah, that it's like this is what God's been longing for. So that it's not just our longing for a new creation, but that all along throughout, like even right now, God is long God is longing too for things to be set right. Um, mm-hmm. That's a really powerful image that it, that God isn't satisfied right now, in a sense, with um, the way things are, but that God is moving things toward a fulfillment because God has this ache of wanting to things to be right with us. As we're talking about the creation of Adam and how God took such care. Uh, from what we read in Genesis 2 about taking the, the dirt and forming him and breathing into him, it's making me think back a couple episodes ago when we were talking about the resurrected body and our spiritual bodies and just wondering how much time and effort God puts into recreating our bodies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, those bodies that have either decomposed because of nature, you know, or, or cremate. You know, we talked about all those things, you know, that the early Christians being t- torn apart yeah, by lions, lions and, and all that stuff. And, and God taking all those pieces, whatever they might be, and forming them again, just mm-hmm. like he formed Adam, and breathing new life into them, this new spiritual life into them. It's the connections that we're making today mm-hmm. between Genesis and, and other parts of the biblical story is just blowing my mind because mm. it, it, I'm not like, I think I've always kind of known this stuff, but it just hasn't fully clicked mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. until this conversation. So I want to thank you both for that. It's been really good. Cool. Think about that. Thank you. <laughs> well, now that we've done all the rounds of mutual thanks all around, go, go team. <laughs> um, We've, we've made it backwards all the way through the Bible, um, mm-hmm. and hopefully um, the, the way these themes have interconnected has been helpful for you as you're listening to. That, that these aren't the only places these themes will keep emerging, but maybe mm-hmm. now with your eyes and ears open, you'll catch that throughout the whole of the Bible, there's this recurring idea of God not giving up on creation, mm-hmm. but God saying, I'll renew it, I'll make things new. Um, and that that idea is shouting at us from throughout the scriptures, not just uh, in the New Testament, and not just in the sense of one day we'll get to go to a place called heaven when we die, but this idea of renewing all of creation um, in this huge, vast enterprise of God. It, it, that the Christian faith is that big, mm-hmm. and it's not just how do I get my ticket to the afterlife, but it's about <laughs> renewing all of creation. Mm-hmm. So we'll head in new directions next time, and we uh, hope you'll join us for the next adventure here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you guys. Bye.